0: Father, we would ask you that you would open our eyes pour out your spirit not only on my words but on everyone here that they can hear and know that Jesus is King. And we ask you that you will guide us in your word today. In Christ we pray. Amen. So we have a Bible open to John chapter 7 if you have Uh, this, that would be on page uh, 42. So in C.S. Lewis's first book, The Magician's Nephew, in the Narnia series, he tells the story of Uncle Andrew, who thought he was a magician, He did develop some magic rings, right, to go to other worlds. And then his nephew, hence the name, which is his nephew, and his friend Polly, they get to visit Narnia. I'm giving you the short story, okay? So they all end up in Narnia, right, and Andrew, Uncle Andrew, he's the skeptical one, right, they get the Narnia and it's all dark, right? Well, Aslan, the lion, is creating Narnia from nothing. That's the hero. And so, everybody's watching this. And yet, Uncle Andrew, when he looks at the animals and they're talking to Aslan, he cannot understand them. So the narrator here says about Uncle Andrew, and I want to bring this up because I think it fits our passage. Uncle Andrew is hidden in the woods, right? He says what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what kind of person you are. And then Adrian, as he's talking to Uncle Andrew later, says this. The world is first seen with life for a few days because of the psalm with which I called it Into Life. It still hangs in the air and rumbles in the ground. It will not be for so long. But I cannot tell that to the old sinner Uncle Andrew and I cannot comfort him either, for he himself has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would only hear growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's son, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that might might do you good. So today, I want to show you from this passage what Uncle Andrew found out, that how you see Jesus, your perspective of him will determine how you see life. Now, as we start in chapter 7, remember Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy, finished chapter 6 last week, and now we fast forward six months between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of 7. Now, John is silent. All he says in chapter 1, verse 1, is Jesus went about in Galilee. The other Gospels, they tell us what happened. Okay? So, just as a spoiler alert, okay? But you read the other Gospels, It says that Peter had his confession of Jesus in Matthew 16. You have the transfiguration with cameo appearances from Moses and Elijah. We have the feeding of the 4,000. Now, the feast of the tabernacles was a hand. I can't say the word booth, okay? I can't say that, so I'm going to say tabernacles. It's the feast of tabernacles. Now that's the feast that commemorates the provision of God's people in the wilderness after the Exodus. During the feast, the people dwell in huts or booths to signify how God dwelt with them, with faithfulness in the wilderness. He proves faithful. So this feast is particularly related to water and, light. and we're going to see that later on in the next few weeks as we go through chapter 7. Now how fitting it is that Jesus returns to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacle. It's God's faithfulness to redeem his people. He leaves Galilee for the last time. This is like the point of no return. He does not return until after the cross. And Jesus tells his disciples, Luke, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish from Jerusalem. So the brothers and the people don't get Jesus. We're going to see that today. We're going to look at three ways to see Jesus, right? Remember, how you see Jesus, your perspective of him, will determine how you see life. We're going to, the outlines in your um, energy pack, how the brothers see Jesus, how the crowd see Jesus, and then how Jesus sees Jesus himself. So let's see how the brothers see Jesus. Verse 3. Jesus' is brothers, words, and Jesus' brothers' words and Jesus are telling, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. See, the brothers want Jesus to fit into their worldview. Now they were not mocking him here, right? you imagine having a perfect brother? You know, he, he was perfect, right? But that's not what they're doing here. They were thinking, their mistake, is they were thinking of a physical kingdom and all the advantages that come with that. Did they want a famous brother? Perhaps. But most likely, they, like Carson says, they want to put Jesus on the sleigh. If Jesus is going to be a public figure, well, get on with it. You know, you can be famous, maybe even king, Jesus. And that kind of attitude leads to very many sinful motives and actions. For them, it was the right time. But the 5 tells us, you no, know, they had yet. To believe in Jesus. Now, you can imagine if Jesus lived in our age, and the brothers, right? Here's what they would say. Jesus, you got to get on Twitter, you got to get on Facebook, Instagram, update your LinkedIn, okay? And you can be famous, right? You can even get your own app, the Jesus app, right? You can post your favorite quotes, you can have a series on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you can even do a feature in the Atlantic on the I right? You can be famous, Jesus. So now, come with us, Jesus. Come to Jerusalem now. Think of the entourage that you can have. It will be a triumphal entry for you, Jesus. No one's going to know who you are in this fat water place. Get on with it. Come on. Put yourself on the sleigh. As we press on in the Gospel of John, we're going to see indeed that Jesus will be on the sleigh in Jerusalem. Just not in the way the brothers were thinking. He was going to be under the sleigh on the cross for all to see. So the brothers' agenda pointed to their right time. Their motto might have been, there's no better time than the present. But Jesus was working on a different timeline, a different timetable, one designed by the Father. Now, we're going to come back to this later. Right but for now, the brothers see Jesus not with eyes of faith, much like the crowd, the people in Jerusalem. We'll come back to more of Jesus and the brothers as we get to point three. But first, let's jump to verse 11 and see how the crowd sees Jesus. John, our author, changes the scene to Jerusalem. Now, picture a moving director, like, fading to black, right? And then fading to show the Temple Mount. Right? In verse 11, the Jewish leaders are looking for Jesus. They were, their motives were evil. They were trying to kill Jesus. And in the coming weeks, in chapter 7, we will play out that whole drama. But for now, John focuses on the people who are grumbling. We saw a lot of grumbling in chapter 6, didn't we? So, How do they see Jesus? Surprisingly, it's similar to what we hear today. Verse 12. Some said he is a good man. Jesus is a good guy, right? I may be dating myself, but you, brothers, know Jesus is all right by me, right? Jesus is all right by me. Okay. (laughs) We hear people say that today, right? I like Jesus. He's kind of cool right? He's a good teacher. And another group say, no, no, no. He's leading people astray. Others saw him on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like a a charlatan, a deceiver of the people. He was leading people down the wrong path. Later, when Jesus said that they were going to try and kill him, they said, well, you have a demon. You're crazy there is a lot of confusion and uncertainty about who Jesus is. The people are fickle, right? They see Jesus in different ways. But verse 13 is kind of unexpected. This muttering, the NIV says, whispering. Yet for the Jews, the fear of the Jews, no one spoke overly of him. It's not even proper to talk about Jesus. Even if you don't believe in him. What does that remind you of? Right? For even the crowd, they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Even if they didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. Now, the crowd, I think, illustrates C.S. Lewis' trilemma. Now, you may not remember this, but several months ago, Jeremy quoted this quote from C.F. Lewis that has the title, Lion, uh, lion. <laughs> Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. And I'm, I want to read that to you, because I really think it fits John chapter 7. This is C.F. Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and says the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher he would be either a lunatic, on the level of man that says he is a poached egg, or else the devil of hell. You must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shun him up for a fool, you can sit at him, kill him as a demon, or fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him as being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So how do you see Jesus? See, our perspective of Jesus will will drive our desires, right? If we're seeking prosperity in the gospel, then Jesus is the king with benefits, right? For those that, who like his teaching without godly obedience, Jesus is like Aesop's fables for our generation. For those seeking like, a Christian nationalism, Jesus is the kingdom on earth. But Jesus is claiming he is more than this. So let's see how Jesus sees himself. How Jesus sees Jesus. And we're going to jump to verse 16. Well, One thing that jumps out at me, actually we're going to go back to verse 6, I think. One thing that jumps out at me about Jesus' dialogue with his brothers is that Jesus had a timetable right the father's saying hey now is the right time listen what jesus says verse six jesus said to them my time has not yet come but your time is always here the world cannot hate you but it hates me because i testify that its works are evil you go up to the feast I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not fully come. Now Jesus is telling his brothers it's not time for him to go to the feast. He did not say that he would not go to the feast, but he was on a timeline, a God timeline. He was waiting to be released by the Father, to go to Jerusalem. The Father has a timetable, including when Jesus wants to leave for the feast. Another thing you notice about Jesus through himself, Jesus sees that his teaching is not from him. The crowd was amazed at, by Jesus' teaching in verses uh, 16, 15 and 16. But they were ruffled because he was, he was preaching, he had learning without being under the rabbis, right? A new rabbi back then, they would quote, like right, the Don Carsons and everybody else, right? They would, not their own teaching, they would quote the ones that they studied under. Even the Apostle Paul, if you think about it, he acknowledged studying under the Pharisee rabbi chameleon. But Jesus got his teaching from the Father himself. Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now how do we know that Jesus' words are God's words? Look at verse 17, which I think is really the hinge verse of this passage. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. Now, I want to take some extra time here. Our will to do God's will shows us whether Jesus' teaching is from God. Dr. Don Carson has such an excellent comment on this. I, I just can't paraphrase it, so I'm going to read it to you. It's a little long, but bear with me, I think it's worth uh, saying in total. Dr. Carson writes, whether or not Jesus' claims are true cannot be decided by debating like other rabbis. There is a moral dimension involved. Jesus has already insisted that free human decisions that free human decisions about his claims are impossible. Remember that? John 6, no one can come to the Father, no one come to the Father unless he draws him. Now he, Carson uh, keeps going, now he articulates what, from the human side, is necessary to a right assessment of his teaching if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out. The point is that a seeker must attain a certain thing again. The point is not that a seeker must attain a certain God approval level, like an ethical achievement, before venturing to assess whether or not Jesus' teaching comes from God. But, that a seeker must fundamentally be committed to doing God's will. There is a faith commitment here. Then, God then fills the seeker's horizon. God's will is not something simply to be thought of about and assessed. As if God is the object that we may politely examine, dissect, and discuss, picking and choosing what we like about him. Carson continues and wraps it up. The faith, commitment, and vision here, the moral choice is properly basic and renders impossible any attitude that sets us up as judges of God's ways. This means that the truth, the truth is self-authenticating in the sense that a finite fallen human beings cannot set themselves up on some kind of sure ground outside the truth. So what does that mean for us? Well, let's unpack the quote. Our vision at GLC is meaningful meaningfully, and relationally engaging even the most skeptical people with good news of Jesus. So Jesus is saying two things in verse 17 to us today. Especially uh, for skeptics. If you, as a skeptic, or even a believer in Christ, come to Jesus willing to learn, Jesus will Fill your horizon. He will reward that humility. If you, though, as a skeptic, come to Jesus and pick and choose what you like about Jesus, and then discard the rest, you will not know or find God. God is not impressed with our judgments. Well, how can I will, God's will, if I don't control God's drawing me to him? Right? Come to God, but you can't come unless God grants you to come. Right? It it, it kind of sounds like a catch-22. Now, that, we've all heard maybe that term, but it came from a book written in 1970 by Joseph Heller, called Catch-22. I had to read it in high school. Now here's what it was. There was a a bomber in, a bomber pilot in Vietnam. His name was Orr. He was tired of flying missions because he was concerned about his own safety. So he was told he could stop. Okay, there was only, quote, there was only one catch, and that was catch 22, which specified that a concern for one's own safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was a process of a rational mind. Or was crazy and could be grounded. All he had to do was ask, but as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy and would have to fly more missions. Or it would be crazy to fly more missions, and sane if he didn't. But if he was sane, he had to fly them. If he flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to. But if he didn't want to, he was sane and had to. That's a catch-22. So, is this a catch-22? No. God the Father draws us to believe. And we have the responsibility to choose and respond. It's not a catch-22. God is not tricking us. See John 6:44 and John 6:55. 65 are true. No one can come to the Father but by the Father. Likewise, 7:17 is true. If you will, if you will. Or choose to do God's will, you will know God. You will find him, find out if Jesus' words are true. If you want to find out, if you find yourself wanting to God's will, do God's will and believe, then you know the word is true. It's the kind of difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. So. What's the answer? How does this come about? So last week, Carol and I had a chance to go away um, to a lake. I've never been on a paddle board, right? And I was frightened to stand on the paddleboard, okay? So I got on the paddleboard. I was very skeptical, okay? To stand up. So how do I overcome my skepticism? Well, I take a step. I, I put one foot on the board and try and stand. And that's what I did. So it's as if verse 17 was on top of the board, right? If anyone's wills to do God's will, then he will know whether my teaching is from God. And underneath the board, it says, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. So if you are skeptical today, What's the first step? Well, you step up on the paddleboard. Meaning you open a Bible and read. Be open to hear what God is saying in his word. This is really part of my personal testimony. Carol, I didn't come to the Lord until much later in life. But I was listening to a motivational speaker who told me, and I, I want to do, I want to be business, you know, famous in business and whatever, he says, you have to know all 66 books of the Bible. Okay. So I started to read. I did not understand much at first. I knew the stories. I was raised in uh, a mainline denomination. But then, I was reading the word, but like sin and salvation, it didn't make any sense to me. But I was reading. And then we started attending the church. And something that Jeremy said last week, that preaching is slow growth, right? It draws people slowly. So Carol and I sat on the Bible, gospel preaching for two months. And then the word us, by great mercy to be born again into a living hope. One week, I'm writing in my journal as a non-Christian. The next week, I'm writing in my journal as a Christian. And God began to teach me about faith, repentance, salvation. How did Jesus see himself? He knew his timetable. He knew his mission. His authority. His goal. Included, not to seek his own glory, but the glory of the Father. That's verse 18. So how does Jesus confirm his authority? That's the last part, and we're not going to have time, much time to spend on the last part. But Jesus backs up his claim of teaching with God's authority by returning the crowd to a year earlier. What was happening a year earlier? He was in the temple, and he healed the man that had been invalid for 38 years. It might be interesting. I wonder if that guy was actually in the audience, right? That's the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. He healed on the Sabbath. Now why did Jesus go back to that miracle? To show that he had the authority to offer Sabbath rest. Now he justifies his authority from lesser to greater argument. You know, he says that, hey, it's acceptable to circumcise a newborn man on the eighth day, on the Sabbath. How much more is it acceptable, glorious, to heal the whole man on the Sabbath? See, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he has the authority to bring healing and rest to those who come to him. He has fulfilled the redemption, rem- redemptive mission God for, has for his people. Now, I'm not going to have time, I'm going to give you some homework. Go to Hebrews 4 and see how the author of Hebrews really kind of exegetes this passage, but I'll leave you with one verse, uh, a couple of verses from that. Hebrews 4, 9 to 10. So, there, the, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. As Jesus was dying on the cross, He said, it is finished. He rested from his work for us. As I conclude, I want to return to Diggory and give you the rest of the story of the magician's nephew. At the end of the story, Diggory be- is told by the to bury the magic rings, but he also brought back an apple. You'll have to read the story. His mom was healed, so he took the apple core, buried it, buried the rings around it, and later a beautiful apple tree grew up at that very spot. Years later, it grew down, but as an older man, he cherished the wood and made a wardrobe, you know where that goes, a door to Narnia. So John Newton, he's the one that uh, wrote uh, Amazing Grace, a little known hymn called the Bitter Waters, which my friend gave, um, wrote a song called Bitter Sweet. I'm going to read you a couple lines from that hymn. But there's a wonder working wood, I hear believers say, can make these bitter waters good and take the curse away. The cross on which the Savior died and conquered by his saints, this is the tree by faith applied, which sweetens all complaints. When they by faith behold the cross, though many griefs they meet, they draw again from every loss and find the bitter, sweet, Jesus, the branch, died on the cross of wood to give us entrance not to Narnia, but to everlasting God life in the kingdom of God. Can you see Jesus as He sees Himself? There is no better way than through the elements of the Lord's table.